and they'll put one into your hand, and that way you can not only hear the Word of God, but read it yourself. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, today. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, by the Spirit of God, he said, I say then, has God cast away his people, speaking of the Jews? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah how, uh, no, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But it is of works. Uh, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have, have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear, to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare, and a trap, a stumbling block, and a recompense to them, that their eyes be darkened so that they may not uh, see, and bow down their back always. Let's stop there and we'll pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful time of worship and song that we have enjoyed of just lifting up uh, praise to you and in our own hearts and in this place giving you honor and giving you the glory that you're due. And we pray, Lord, that our worship would now continue as we move into your word and that we wouldn't study this independent of our relationship with you, but that our worship would continue now as we interact with you through your word. We pray that you would use it this morning to feed us, uh, to correct us, Lord, to encourage us, and also to um, uh, equip us, Lord, and sanctify us for your purposes in our life and through our lives in this little blink of time in human history that you've called us to love you and to live for you in, in this world. And we pray for this work of your Spirit through your Word now, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that chapters 9 through 11 of the book of Romans are written to Jewish Christians who were a part of the church in Rome. And the church in Rome at that time was made up of both uh, Jews and Gentiles who had come to put their faith in uh, Jesus as their Christ and as their Savior. And in these chapters, 9 through 11, Paul anticipates the questions that would have arisen in the minds of any Jewish listener as this letter, and it was sent as a letter to Rome, as they would listen to the, first, the reading of the first eight chapters, probably in some kind of a worship service there in the church. And as those eight chapters were being read, he anticipated the questions that would probably arise in the mind of, of the Jewish Christians there uh, as a result of, of what it is that 
he had written, and he anticipates those questions, and then he answers those questions that he anticipates, very much a Jew himself, and he had three, you know, all of those missionary journeys and all of his sharing with both Jew and Gentile, he was well aware of the questions that would arise in people's minds. And the questions that he anticipated were questions like, does the fact that uh, in the mind of, of the Jewish listener, does the fact that we are God's chosen people not apply to us anymore in the light of the gospel? And uh, what advantage is there to being a Jew if God has chosen to save both Jew and Gentiles in precisely the same way? And Paul answered those questions in chapter 9. Another question that would have arisen was, what is, uh, what is it that uh, how is it that there is so few Jewish Christians in comparison to the number of Gentile Christians? Uh, and does that represent a failure on God's part toward the Jewish people in some way? And as we've seen, Paul address that in chapter 10. The questions that he addresses in chapter 11 here, questions like, is God through with the Jewish people as a people and as a nation? And if God is through with them, is a unique people and is a a unique nation, then what about all of the promises that he gave to them in the Old Testament that are yet to be uh, fulfilled, uh, that were given under the Old Covenant? And uh, Paul now comes to answer those questions in uh, chapter 11. And this chapter is not only helpful, of course, for uh, in, in helping Jewish Christians to understand the relationship between uh, the Jewish people and the church, that is the church as it's used in the Bible, talking about Christians. The church is not a building like this. The church is uh, the called out ones, the ecclesia. That it, it is made up, as, as Pastor Allen shared, of these living stones. It's made up of Christians all around the world. We constitute uh, the church. And so what is to be the relationship between uh, the Jewish people and the church? And that would have been uh, at the forefront of the mind of a Jewish Christian. And, uh, but it has a great deal to say uh, to us. It's very, very important instruction for uh, Gentiles uh, who think about the same thing related to that, the same question. What is to be our relationship with the Jewish people? What is to be our attitude toward them? What is to be our conduct? Uh, toward them. We won't address all of that this morning, but we'll address the the early part of it. And all of this is important because uh, any of us that are familiar with uh, human history and certainly with church uh, history, we realize that some of the greatest atrocities uh, that have occurred in human history have been directed toward the Jews. And uh, not by by pagan, uh, you know, human population, but some of the worst expressions of anti-Semitism in the history uh, of the world have been performed by those who identified themselves as Christians and uh, producing really, literally the ugliest stains in, in church history. Uh, Christians, or at least those who considered themselves as such, acting as if Jesus himself were not Jewish, uh, and, and certainly out of the complete ignorance of what Paul speaks to us and to the church here in chapter 11 about how we're to see the Jews and interact with uh, the Jews. And all of it occurred out of a complete failure to understand or to uh, uh, know uh, Romans chapter 11 
and the very passage that we're studying today. And then there have been uh, some very, very misguided attempts on the part of Christians today to try to solve the question of how we as Christians are to view the Jewish people and how we are to understand them spiritually and, and what is to be at the foundation of our interactions uh, with them. There are Christians today who adhere to what is known as replacement theology and the idea that uh, the church has replaced Israel in God's plan, that the Jews are no longer God's chosen people and that God doesn't have a specific plan any longer for the Jewish people. And Paul dismisses all of that thinking in just a single half verse. As you look at verse 1 of chapter 11 again, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly uh, not. And he continues to blow up this whole idea Uh, in the remainder of of the chapter. And then there are those who embrace what is known as the the dual covenant theology or the two covenant theology. And it's the idea that the old covenant or the keeping of the law of Moses, that that is a valid way by which uh, Jews can be saved and enjoy a, a relationship with God. And that the new covenant, uh, uh, where relationship with God is established on the basis of faith in Christ, that that new covenant applies only to Gentiles. It applies only uh, to Jews. And so uh, each one has their own distinct, unique path uh, to to God. In other words, that the Jewish people uh, have no need to trust in Jesus for salvation of all, at all. And, of course, that violates not only the teaching of the entire New Testament, but it violates the teaching of the Old Testament. And remember, Paul, the great pains that he took in Romans chapter 4 here to show that Abraham was declared righteous in the sight of God 17 years before God gave him the right of circumcision and a full 430 years before the law of Moses was given to the Jewish people. And so how can you be declared righteous on the basis of the keeping of the law of Moses when there is a 430-year gap between uh, Abraham being declared righteous and the giving of of the law of of Moses? Jesus, of course, knew nothing of this uh, dual covenant at all. You remember that it was to an extraordinarily uh, religious Jew by the name of Nicodemus that in one of the most famous evangelistic uh, interactions in the entire Bible, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about his need for salvation, even as a religious Jew, uh, famously in John chapter 3. And Jesus said to him, Most assuredly, or verily, verily, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It was to this same Nicodemus that Jesus spoke the most famous words in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul has already blown up that idea uh, uh, through uh, that, that, uh, of this two ways to, to God throughout the entire book of Romans, and he certainly 
did so once again as you would turn a page back uh, to Romans chapter 10 verse 1. Uh, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they may be saved. He knew nothing of this dual covenant or this two covenant uh, theology. Now you might wonder where in the world this dual covenant theology came from. And it, it was birthed into human history following uh, the Holocaust uh, against the Jews during uh, World War II. And uh, some uh, liberal Protestant leaders uh, it, it became uncomfortable with continuing uh, to evangelize uh, the Jews. And as John Stott put in his, his commentary, he said they attempted to develop a theological basis for leaving the Jews alone in their Judaism. And that's where this uh, two uh, covenant or dual covenant theology comes from and, uh, and, and, and the origin of it. In the early 1960s, uh, Roman Catholicism, uh, their Vatican II came into being and uh, they followed suit then with some uh, fuzzy language uh, concerning the issue of the evangelization and the salvation of the Jews. And, uh, and uh, even though in, in, in the year 2008, the Catholic bishops voted overwhelmingly at that point uh, to uh, remove the fuzzy language from Vatican II uh, from uh, the next printing of their catechism. And in, 19, uh, in 2015, uh, the uh, non-binding Vatican Commission released a document recommending that the Roman Catholic Church no longer engage in organized missions uh, to the Jews. And they stated this, the Catholic Church neither conducts nor supports any specific institutional mission work directed toward uh, the Jews. And while there is a principled rejection uh, of an institutional Jewish mission on the part of Roman Catholics, uh, it then goes on to speak that individual Christians are free to do so, and they state one of the reasons for uh, taking this stance that they do is in light of the great tragedy of Shoah or, or the Holocaust. You might remember uh, a number of years ago, big controversy broke out in 2009 when the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, published a series of prayer guides uh, to their, uh, uh, those that were a part, are part of their uh, denomination. And the prayer guides were uh, uh, simply, they published uh, these series of guides in, uh, tied to various non-Christian religions and their observances. And the guides were intended to encourage Baptists to pray for the salvation of those who belong to these various uh, religions during their holy days. Well, it created, it didn't create an uproar in any other group, except it did create an uproar, a, a roar among uh, the Jews. And, uh, and, and, and concerning that, that uh, prayer guide that was designed to help them uh, pray specifically related to the Jews, uh, to help Southern Baptists pray for the conversion of their Jewish friends and their neighbors uh, as they observed uh, Rosh Hashanah. And uh, some Jewish groups then accused the Southern Baptists of projecting a spiritual narrowness that invites theological hatred. 
And they called these uh, attempts to evangelize the Jews uh, an attempt at spiritual annihilation. And uh, many of you perhaps remember the great controversy that occurred. I certainly do at that time. And, uh, uh, it, but all of it reminds us that as Christians, an understanding of Romans 9 through 11, including chapter 11, as we uh, study it in part here this morning, is very important and important for us to be uh, biblically educated on all fronts for the world that, that we live in and God's call upon our lives. It's also important to remember when Paul writes these three chapters, so much to remember. We'll get into the text itself in a moment. But when he writes these three chapters and he talks about Israel, 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 he's not talking about a geographical piece of land in the Middle East. When he talks about Israel, he's talking about the Jewish people as a whole. And he's talking about Israel was the name that God gave to Jacob when they wrestled at the brook Jabbok. And the word, uh, the name that God gave to Jacob at that time was Israel. Israel means uh, governed by God or to be ruled by God. And he's talking here when he talks about Israel, out of Jacob came the sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. He's talking to the Jewish people as a whole, not talking about a government or talking about a, 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 a physical nation and not really talking about uh, Jews individually. He's talking to them uh, and about them uh, as, as a group. You notice that Paul raises the question in verse 1, has God cast away his people? And he follows again this pattern that he's carried all the way through Rome, and that is of posing questions that he anticipates his reader will have, and then answering that question. And so here he poses the question, has God cast away his people, speaking of the Jews? In other words, is God through with the Jews? Has the church replaced them? And does the smallness of their numbers in comparison uh, to the number of Gentile Christians mean that uh, God has rejected them? And his short answer is right there in verse 1, certainly not. And, uh, and uh, he certainly wanted there to be absolute clarity uh, on it before he heads into his elaboration. He says, certainly not. He goes into his elaboration, and, and he's going to buttress now this, uh, this argument that, that has, has God cast away his people, certainly not. And uh, Paul is going to bring forth some examples of the fact that God has not uh, cast away the Jewish uh, people. And Paul, in verse 1, he presents himself as exhibit A, that God has not cast away the Jews. And you see that he describes himself in verse 1 as an Israelite uh, of the tribe of Abraham. Uh, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, you can't get more Jewish uh, than the Apostle Paul uh, was. In other words, Paul is saying here, if God is, was through with the Jews, if he was not interested in their salvation, or if there were two tracks to salvation, uh, then uh, the, the one and single greatest person that God could have demonstrated that through would have been in leaving Saul of Tarsus, the person Paul was before he became a Christian, uh, persecuting the early church like a wild animal, violent, violent opposition to Christ. And if 
if God was done with the Jews, he would have left the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus in that unsafe condition. But God didn't do that. God was the hound of heaven to Saul of Tarsus and then makes him into the, the Apostle Paul. And God reached through all of that hatred and all of that indoctrination and he got th- through to Paul by the Holy Spirit in this remarkable demonstration of his power and his love in a Jew, in the Apostle Paul uh, himself. A second example of the fact that God was not through with the Jews that Paul raises here, he raises it in verses 5 and 6, and that is the very Jews that were a part of the church there in Rome with the other Gentile uh, Christians, this Jewish remnant, uh, larger uh, Jewish remnant uh, among the Jews who, as Paul puts it, whose eyes God had opened to the fact that salvation is received on the basis of grace. It is not received on the basis uh, of uh, works, but based upon our faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, you yourselves... I mean, you raise the question, is God through with the Jews? But then how do you account for your life and you becoming a Christian? It was a work of the Holy Spirit in your life that drew you uh, into uh, this place. And so the very existence of these Jewish Christians in the church at Rome, they were part of a remnant and they were evidence of the fact that God did not uh, and had not cast away the Jewish people. Uh, As were all of the apostles, all of them Jewish. The 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost as Peter preached, all of them Jewish. The 5,000 who were saved when Peter then preached at the beautiful gate in the book of Acts and the healing, following the healing of the lame man there, another 5,000 people saved, certainly uh, virtually all of them uh, Jews. And in fact, very early on, uh, the church was made up almost entirely of Jews. Now, notice too in verses 2 through 4 that Paul then provides them with an encouragement from the life of the Old Testament prophet uh, uh, Elijah and to remind them once again, as he's already reminded them in, in chapter 9, that this is not, in rejecting Christ, this is not the first time in Jewish history that the majority had things exactly wrong, while it was only a godly remnant who got things right. Again, to know anything about Jewish history from the Old Testament Scriptures is to know that throughout their history, the overwhelming percentage of Jews at any time in their history did not walk closely with God. They did not walk obediently with God. That they had been, as Paul described them in verse 21 of of chapter 10, that they had been by and large a disobedient and a contrary people. And it was always through Jewish history only a comparatively small remnant who did actually walk closely with God. You think about it in just provoking our memories a bit. You think about the book of Exodus. No sooner had they been delivered from the bondage of Egypt 
and they're making their way to the promised land, to Canaan. uh, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai in order to get the Ten Commandments. And while he's up there, it takes longer than the people are willing to wait. And they, who is this Moses? And they disrespect him and they discard him. And then Moses' brother, Aaron, astonishingly enough, uh, the people are demanding something to worship. He calls for their gold, and he fashions a golden calf. And when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, he finds the entire group of people who have this history with God now of all of the ten great miracles that God did in redeeming them out of Egypt and they're dancing half naked and drunk around this golden calf. And in, in, in the light of all that God had already done for them, in the book of Numbers, they refused to go into the promised land as God had commanded them to. And the 12 spies come back, you might remember, and 10 of the spies said, we'll get killed going in there. I mean, you've got the Anakim in there, and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. It'll be a slaughter if we go in there. And two of the, the witnesses, the, the spies that had gone in, Joshua and Caleb, they came back and they said, don't believe these guys. Yeah, there's a, it's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's everything that God said uh, that, it, uh, that it was. And God will be with us. He wouldn't call us to do something except he'd give us the ability to do it. Let's rise up now and obey him and go into the land. And then we're told that the Jewish people At Kadesh Barnea, as they stood at that particular place, they rejected the witness of uh, Joshua and Caleb and accepted the witness of the unbelieving ten spies. And then as Joshua and Caleb continued to try and encourage the people to obey God's commandment to enter into the land, the entire nation then rose up at that moment and were determined to stone those two to death. Joshua and Caleb stood alone at that moment in in an entire nation that were were determined to silence them by by way uh, of of death. And in fact, the entire congregation uh, uh, would end up, that entire generation of Jews would end up uh, dying in the wilderness and uh, over the course of the next 40 years, and only Joshua and Caleb themselves would enter from that generation into the promised land. You take the book of Joshua, it's hardly better as you read about the incomplete conquest of, of the land and in, in incomplete obedience to the Word of God. Judges is, is one of the most dismal histories in the entire Old Testament. Dismal from beginning to, to end, where it said not of the Philistines, not of the pagans, not of the Amorites or the Hittites, but it was said of the Jews, the Jewish people, that everyone did that which was right in their own eyes and went right down into the gutter. I mean, they outpaganed the pagans in terms of sin. And that entire uh, long, long section of their history. You take the historical books, 
First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, and all of them are a record of virtually one bad king after another. And even when an occasional good king would come uh, forward to to reign and attempt to set things right within the nation and establish righteousness once again among uh, the the Jewish people, the people would give an outward appearance of being in line with these godly kings, but. As we know from the prophets, the idolatry continued in the privacy of their own hearts and in the privacy of their own homes. And virtually all of the prophetic books, both the major prophets and the minor prophets, almost all of them were written against the backdrop of a very, very small godly remnant of the Jews. Uh, in a very small godly group of Jews who were serious about God and obeying God in the larger context of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of the uh, general sin and idolatry among the Jewish people. And again, this godly remnant was not a godly remnant among the Gentile nations. This group of Jews who were living faithfully for God, they were not a godly remnant or called a godly remnant uh, because they were uh, uh, small in numbers in terms and in contrast, again, to the Canaanites or to the Philistines or the Syrians or the Egyptians or the Hittites or the Hivites. But they were a minority that took God seriously among the Jews, among the Jewish people as a whole, and among the nation. The prophetic books uh, written uh, supremely, not supremely to the the Gentile nations, calling on them to repent of their sin and their idolatry and their apostasy. But they were written to rebuke these things among the Jews. And Elijah's life and his ministry was lived in precisely this context, and he prophesied for God during the reign of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. The two, he was the single worst king in the history of the Jewish nation and the, and the northern kingdom uh, of, of Israel. The most wicked of all of, of the kings and queens, Ahab and Jezebel. And this was the context, and they were Jews. And this was the context in which uh, Elisha, Elijah was uh, ministering, and he prophesied during, during that period. Very, very spiritual dark. I mean, spiritually dark beyond description. Elijah himself, anyone who was godly at all, had to run and hide themselves. God had to supernaturally take care of them. Again, not in the land of the Philistines, not in Egypt, not in Assyria, not in Syria, but in the land of Israel. This is how dangerous it was to be a serious Jew among the Jews in their history and at the time that Elijah was ministering. And he prophesied, and and you notice here as uh, Paul quotes Elijah's plea with God, and the plea that he makes, you notice, is it's introduced here in in, uh, in verse 3, and here he says at the end of verse 4, uh, says of Elijah how he pleads with God against the Philistines. No, against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek uh, my life. 
And, 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 and here is the quote that, that is made concerning Elijah's ministry, his plea to God against Israel following his execution of the 450 prophets of Baal on that great uh, showdown uh, that occurred on Mount Carmel, and then uh, Jezebel threatened his life as a result of it, and, uh, and he fled there saying, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and as we see there, and they seek my life. And again, who was the they? Not the Hivites, not the Amorites, not the Philistines, not the Hittites. It was Jews, apostate Jews, apostate Jews. But in the midst of the general rebellion and apostasy of Israel, there was always, always, always a small godly remnant that God then reminded Elijah of in his despair. As it's written there in verse 4, God spoke to him in, in the depth of Elijah's despair, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah thought he was the last, that's it, I, that's it, I'm the only, you know, person that's serious about you right now in, in the land of Israel and they're going to, trying to wipe me out. If they wipe me out, it's, it's all gone. And the Lord speaks to him and says, no, I know it's, it doesn't look good, uh, but there's 7,000 just like you. You just can't recognize them uh, there within the land. Now, 7,000 was a larger remnant than Elijah realized existed. But you have to remember that was 7,000 in a context of a population among the men in the northern kingdom of Israel at that time of about a million uh, uh, people. So it was a, even the 7,000 was a very small minority. And yet, it was the remnant that was right. And on the right side of God, and the majority was not. And that's what Paul is trying to get through to these Jewish Christians uh, to, to understand about their history and about their present minority status numerically among the Jews as a whole by virtue of being Christians, concerning a faith in Jesus for salvation as opposed to it being on the basis of works or human effort. And personally, I think it's a very good word for us as Christians today in general. And we need to remember that there, when there is a wholesale rejection of God's Word and an apostasy from God, not merely by the world, not merely the world's rejection of God and His Word, but even among those who claim to know God and to love God, but to realize that there is always a remnant God is using to fulfill His plan and His promises and to move His purposes forward in in human history, and that God's purposes in the world, His, His, His prophecies within, within His Word, they're never ever in jeopardy in this world. He's continuing to move this human history toward its God-appointed end. And the importance of realizing, even as Christians, of being a part of the remnant to be a part of that godly remnant as the, the end of the age approaches. I think as Christians in the United States, we're 
not used to having a minority status. Uh, and because of our nation's Christian heritage, and uh, we've had a majority status uh, through the years, and now we're having to get used to a minority status. And, uh, but this minority status is true of most Christians living in the world elsewhere, but it's becoming more and more true of our country uh, by the month. And thus, passages like this in the Bible that once had very little application to us uh, are now uh, will become more and more important as an encouragement to us as, as time goes on. And I think that increasingly, as we walk more and more alone as Christians, I mean, humanly speaking, in our schools and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods and among our family, and even among those who claim to be Christian, and, and yet who deny what the Bible has to say about Jesus, what he has to say about salvation, that there is only one way, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him. And that like the Old Testament apostate Jews who had kind of compartmentalized their spirituality, they would go to church once a week to appease God and then live their life the rest of the week however they wanted. And this, this apostate uh, group that, that can be there where there's the denying in word and practice, what the Bible has to say about marriage, about sexuality, about sexual immorality, about drunkenness, about getting high, about the use of profanity and language, about idolatry, about holiness, and on and on. And I'm not trying to be melodramatic here. I just want to beg you please to beseech you and to beseech myself to not succumb to any temptation to drop your standard as a Christian in your home or in your school or in your workplace or in your neighborhood or even in church simply because you are becoming a spiritual minority, not merely in the world, but even among God's people. Because as the standards continue to lower, even among Christians, about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then the person who takes all of this seriously, you can begin to wonder, is there something wrong with you? You begin to wonder if they're right and you're wrong. And after all, there are so many, many, many people who claim to be Christian and they're living precisely as they please. No concern for obedience, no concern for holiness at all. And then you begin to wonder if you're the one who's being the fanatic about all of this. And even though you can see the, the proof that you're right in the Scriptures themselves as you would look at them, you still wonder, uh, am I being too strict? Do I need to loosen up a, a little bit to some disobedience and lukewarmness in my relationship with God as well? And that pressure that you feel is the pressure of the remnant. And it is basically to say, welcome to the life of the remnant. It has been 
the portion. This has always been the portion of God's people and a godly remnant from the very beginning. Startlingly to me, Jesus declared in his parable of the woman and the judge, emphasizing the importance of prayer there. And he said, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Jesus says, when I return, will he really find faith on the earth? The fact that Jesus, as he speaks here, the fact that he will come back to this world and he will judge this world, that's not in question. What he questions in his statement is, will I find any faith when I do return? And I would just like to say, in just the privacy of our own hearts here today, again, not an I, the idea of plowing deep and, and then feeling that I've accomplished something by, by doing something. We're all adults in this room. But in the privacy of your own heart as a Christian, if you are backslidden or a lukewarm Christian, I challenge you as I challenge myself, you need to realize that you are a real problem. And you are a real problem not just to yourself, but for everyone else. And you are as big a problem to Christianity in the New Covenant as most of the children of Israel were to the godly remnant in the Old Testament in claiming to represent God and claiming to represent Christianity when, in fact, you deliberately choose not to do so properly. And what's important to realize is that as a result, you, and, and I speak to myself, you do more damage to the body of Christ and are a greater obstacle to the kingdom of God in the world than the unsaved or pagan world ever can be. And this is drop-dead serious. Drop-dead serious, this issue. And I'm not talking about the Christian who struggles with sin. We all do that. This is the Christian who is uh, growing, but we're not perfect yet. We are all that. I'm talking about the Christian who settles into a determined, deliberate decision to live this thing in my, on my own terms, even when vast sections of my life are being lived in direct obedient, disobedience to the Word of God. And it's important for you to realize that when you read the Bible, you ought to read the Bible not in the sense of looking at what God says to a godly remnant among the Jews in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, but to see that you identify with a group that did terrible, terrible damage to the reputation of God and great, brought great hardship to a godly rem remnant in uh, the Old uh, Testament. And to realize that what God did under a lesser covenant Ultimately, he took those people and he spared his remnant, but he took this Jewish nation and people as a whole that were living in this, this uh, two-faced hypocrisy thing, and he led them into two horrible judgments through the Assyrian uh, captivity and the Babylonian captivity. And it always ends in judgment. It always ends in, in a horrible 
horrible end. And it's important for us. If any of us find ourselves in this place, and, and it is the natural thing to drift into that place without effort against it. The Bible declares in 1 John chapter 1, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, that is God, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? And you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Joshua, from the pages of the Old Testament, as he's getting uh, 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 concerning his own life, he said in Joshua chapter 24, now therefore, as he speaks to the Jewish people, and, I, and, and, and it's fascinating because no Gentile could write Romans chapter 11. It would be dismissed in a moment. It takes a Jew to do it. And, and God made Paul his instrument for, for that. Uh, to speak as an authority and to speak honestly in a non-sanctified, uh, in a sanitized way, falsely sanitized way concerning the history. And Joshua said, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him with sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. All of those things from their past life they'd reintroduced back into their life, even as God's people. He said, Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your people have served, uh, your fathers served on the, uh, uh, that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. And what, uh, what option is there to being a remnant when the world around us uh, forces us to, uh, and, and even the church itself forces us to be a remnant, and that loneliness that a person can feel even as a Christian in the world, and even as a Christian in the midst of Christianity, so much of it. The option to go back into the world that we came out of as if it's changed at all, as if it's not a million times worse than we left it, as if it could now satisfy us when it couldn't satisfy us uh, before, we're, as if we're going to find something new or different there. One of the great things about becoming a Christian, and I mention it every so often, is that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, He forever ruins us, forever being able to return back into the world or back into apostasy, or back into uh, lukewarmness, and to ever be satisfied in that place. 
or to enjoy that life in the way that we once did. It was like Simon Peter when he spoke to Jesus, and Jesus famously in John chapter 6, as Jesus delivered that very hard sermon for people to listen to. Thousands of people following him, but they just were waiting for the next loaves and fish thing, the feeding. And he began to talk to them about what it really means to be his disciple and to follow after him. And the crowd begins to melt away in significant numbers before him. So much so that he turns to the apostles that stand at his side and he says, Will you leave me also? And Peter speaks to him there on behalf of all of the disciples and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And I think it's important to remember that the way the Bible teaches that the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is. And to remember that as hard as it might be to faithfully obey God and to live for God and to obey His calling upon each of our lives individually, and it can be very, very hard It was very, it's always been hard for the remnant. Read the book of Hebrews in this vein. But to realize that as hard as that may get, there is something harder still, and that is to live life disobedient to God and His commandments. And I think it's good to be reminded that there is also a heaven at the end of this path that we're on. This path of Paul and the remnant, there's a well done at the end of all of this from the very lips of Jesus himself that will make all of what we experience here, even as a remnant, pale in in comparison in terms of the sacrifice. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, and and Paul brings it up here for this remnant that is a Christian remnant here, but that for all of them, even a prophet as strong as Elijah needed the encouragement of Paul uh, toward this uh, remnant, and so do we. I close with one observation here, really, from verses 7 through 10. And Paul told these Jewish Christians and us that the only alternative to living as as this remnant is to then live a life in spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. You notice in verse 7, he says, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What did Israel seek? Righteousness. Right standing before God. But on their terms on the basis of the law of Moses rather than on God's terms through faith in Jesus as as our Savior. And the result of their rejection, uh, as Paul brings it forth here, the result of their rejection of Jesus Christ was spiritual blindness, as he speaks about it there in in verse 7, or it it could just as well be translated uh, hardness or hardness Uh, of heart. He said, what then? Israel has not obtained what it has, but the the elect has obtained it, and the rest were blinded. It could be equally translated blinded or or hardness, a hardness uh, of of heart. And in verses 8 through 10, what Paul does is he proceeds now to quote three passages from the Old Testament to remind us once again that this 
is not the first time that this has happened in Jewish history. And he quotes there in the first part of, of, uh, uh, of verse 8, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10. Let me read it to you from Isaiah itself. For the Lord has poured out uh, on you the spirit of deep sleep. Again, not written to the pagans, not to the Philistines or the Amorites, written to the Jews. The Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, that is, namely the prophets, and has covered your heads, namely the, the seers. And because of their, this long-time disregarding of God's voice and His Word through His prophets and, and uh, warning them uh, against unbelief and their disobedience, God warned, I will just simply stop talking to you. And so He did. And, he, and he's given them a spirit of, of stupor, as he said here, uh, eyes that they should not see and ears that they could not hear. Not meaning that, that he had taken away their ability to know what was right and wrong, but rather since they didn't want to hear what he had to say, he just stopped talking to them. And the result would be that they would lose the highest function of anyone's eyes and ears, and that is to read the Word of God and to hear the Word of God, to then be able to obey the Word of God. God is saying, and Paul is saying here, that it's not God's fault. They were, they were responsible for their own spiritual blindness. And the second part of uh, verse 8 here, where it begins, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, to this, this very day, he, is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 4, which reads, And yet the Lord has not given uh, you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. God had done all of these miracles for them in delivering them from uh, the land uh, of, of Israel, had performed all these miracles in the course of their 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, and yet even at the end of all of that, the overwhelming majority of the people did not fully appreciate what God had done for them. And then David, he quotes David here in, in uh, verse nine, verses 9 uh, and 10, and it's a quotation from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. Let me read it to you. And David writes, and he says, Let their table become a snare before them. He's praying to God. And their well-being a trap. Uh, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. And in, in uh, Psalm 69... David is lamenting over the enemies uh, that he had, not among the Philistines, not among the Syrians, not among the Moabites or the Amorites, but among the Jewish people, among God's people. And the opposition that he received from God's people was not for doing something wrong, but for simply being a man after God's own heart and, and taking God seriously and endeavoring to obey God and to obey His Word and to serve the Lord according to His Word. In other words, Paul is, is saying uh, that uh, don't think that this is a problem that God ha has had with the Jews only over the issue of Jesus. This has been an ongoing problem. 
When he quotes Moses and he quotes Isaiah and he quotes David, he's saying Moses, though a Jew himself, had to deal with the spiritual insensitivity and rebellion against God by the Jews. Isaiah, a Jew himself, dealt with the same thing. David, a Jew himself, dealt with the same thing. They were all all of them a remnant, a small remnant among the Jewish people as a whole. The Jewish people had a long history of spiritual blindness to what God was trying to do in human history and do in them and through them, and and of rebellion against God. But always in the midst of the blindness, there was a remnant who got it, like Moses, like Isaiah, like uh, David, like uh, uh, Elijah. And I think that sometimes, and it's important for us to hear this as, as Gentile Christians, sometimes when a, a, a Gentile Christian, especially when you're new, and you look around and you're confronted with the general unbelief of the Jewish people concerning Jesus as the promised uh, Messiah, and you can begin to, to think that uh, they know something that we don't know. I mean, after all, we're just Gentiles and all. Surely the Jews have to be a greater expert on these kind of things. But it isn't true. And the fact that comparatively few Jews get it concerning Jesus as Messiah is not a cause for doubt. Paul is saying it has always been this way throughout their history. It has always only been a small remnant of Jews who has ever understood what God was doing and got in line with it. And he encourages that Jewish remnant that had put their faith in Christ that they were now becoming that remnant in this new covenant uh, called uh, the New Testament. This is a very, very interesting passage, and it's an exhortive passage. It's a good passage that way. You know, you'll have to go back 20 years or so now, but um, people used to get exhorted in church. Now it's just a pep rally about how wonderful we all are and God's going to bless everything we do. I'd, I'd, be, a, I'd be a monster in, in a month under that kind of stuff. I need the muscle of the Word of God, and I need the word of exhortation in my life to keep me in line and to keep my thinking in line and my heart in line and well-directed and my mind as well. Next time he's going to talk about, uh, Paul's going to address what's to be our attitude and our treatment of the Jews and the Jewish people as Christians, invaluable instruction that is to be found there as well. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, God loves you and He loves your soul. And by virtue of the fact that you're not yet a Christian, it means He loves your soul more than you love your soul. And He loves your soul and tells you that if you gave gave your soul in exchange for the entire world, then you made a terrible bargain. You don't understand the value of a soul. God loves you so much, as John 3.16 says, that's you personally, you. The little girl, the little boy who was learning how to ride a bike and fell and skinned your knee and you broke out your front tooth or whatever else is a part of your life. He's been tracking with you all of your life. And he so loves you that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, 
that whosoever, that's you, believes in Jesus for salvation shall not perish but have everlasting life. The salvation is found by putting your faith in Christ. And if you'd like to do that this morning, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who'd love to pray with you to do that. If we sit here this morning again in the privacy of our own heart and we look and we say, you know, if I were to look at my own Christian life honestly before God and I were to look at it in the context of the Old Testament of whether I was a part of a godly remnant who stood in, in, the midst of, uh, in, in the midst of not only a pagan and a, in a messed up world, but found it necessary to stand against what Judaism had become and what it was being represented by as, as the Jewish people. And you look and say, I don't think I'm a part of that remnant. I think I, if God looked at me and I was honest about it, I would be a part of that larger group. The importance of repenting of that today, to have a change of mind about the direction that you're going in, and, it, and repentance can occur in an instant just like that. I said, no, I'm done with this. I don't want a self-determined, a self-defined Christianity that is a, a lousy, useless, saltless thing. And I want to turn today, and I want to get back to maybe the life you once knew, but now it's become something else. And I say, I want a Christianity. I want to be a part of the remnant. I want a Christianity that's defined by this book. And maybe the best thing for you today is to just take a long walk. It's a beautiful day, isn't it? Got all these canals to walk along and streets. And just take a long walk this afternoon and get that settled. Or maybe you'd like to settle that before you leave today. These same men and women would love to pray uh, with you and, and for you uh, as, as well. And to those of you who are a part of the remnant, and uh, not in any way of bragging or anything like that, but you just recognize that, and it's important that you must be careful not to bring a different expectation to your Christian life than what we see here in Romans chapter 11. That more often than not, the godly are a relatively small minority, not just in the world, but within Christendom. And for you to stand strong and make sure that you fashion your Christian life and after Jesus and after the Word of God. Let's stand together now and we'll pray and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your Word. Nobody talks like this in the world anymore certainly doesn't do it out of love. And we thank you for these truths that are found here in Romans chapter 11, a chapter that is, uh, is obscure or uh, unstudied uh, as any in the Bible. We thank you for the richness of it, and we pray that all that we've studied today and the words of encouragement, the words of correction, the words of invitation concerning salvation, however all of this is supposed to land upon our hearts and our own relationship with you, that you would cause it to land just perfectly, and that what we've done here today would have the final say now in fashioning who we are and what we are. And we ask for that continued work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, even as we leave this place now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.